And we are in the third of three sermons on the book of Habakkuk, which has three chapters. As I've shared with you already, it is one of my favorite Old Testament books, one that I, I came to know in my time in seminary and happened across a book that I shared a lot about with you last Sunday by the then Old Testament professor of Pittsburgh Presbyterian Seminary in, in Pittsburgh. Donald Gowan is his name, and Dr. Gowan is, I think, in his 90s, still living, and my friend Jeffrey Bullock, for whom Dr. Gowan was his Old Testament prof, sent me uh, Dr. Gowan's email address, and I was able to uh, write him a thank you note for his book, and I hope Jeffrey gave me the right email address. Because, um, But anyway, it's just, uh, again, uh, part of this journey of moving toward retirement is bringing all sorts of memories, and this book is a part of them, and, and part of this preaching that I'm doing in this last year with you. In this third week, in looking at Habakkuk, we've been looking at this little book that deals with the truth of all that we do not know and the questions that we have and that we ask in the face of not knowing and how we need to follow Habakkuk's lead is really the point that I'm trying to make and to climb to the watchtower and scan the horizon for that pinpoint of light in the midst of darkness that we might be experiencing. We live empowered by both memory and anticipation. That is just the way we live our lives. Memory and anticipation of God's love. And we live in that uncertain point between these two things, often, where we live in darkness and wonder how we're going to ever recapture what we had or look forward to what we will receive from God. And Habakkuk, I think, instructs us about how to occupy this middle space and that the fruit of joy is actually born in this middle space as we contemplate what it means to remain faithful to God. And a big part of this last chapter is the celebration of what has happened in the past when we have experienced God's presence. It is the technical word for it, it is a theophany. It is a recounting of an experience of God's presence that Habakkuk has. It's poetic language that points to what happens when we're in God's presence and the way it's both unsettling and assuring all at the same time. It's a reference, a theophany is a reference to historic experiences, and we'll see those in this chapter, and it's something that's very much akin, what Habakkuk does in chapter three is exactly what Isaiah does in chapter six, as he speaks of in the, in, the, in the midst of a time where things are bad and they're going to get worse, and Isaiah hears his call. He has this experience of God's presence that drives him forward into answering that call. And as with Isaiah, Habakkuk lives in a hard time when things are bad, and are about to get worse. And he needs to be especially assured that God will not abandon him in this time. And I invite you to just listen to the poetry in this text. If you ask too many questions about this text, you'll spend your time in your questions rather than hearing an assurance. <laughs> but let the poetry speak to you and hearing the song that Habakkuk sings is the more important truth 
than figuring out the specifics of the elements about which he sings. It starts with a title, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shingyonoth, which no one knows what that means. <laughs> they think it's a, a tune of some kind uh, that you sing this song to. And the song is this. O Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. The brightness was like the sun. Rays came forth from his hand where his power lay hidden. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed close behind. He stopped and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The eternal mountains were shattered. Along his ancient pathways, the everlasting hills sank low. I saw the tents of Kushan under affliction. The tent curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? or your anger against the rivers, or your rage against the sea when you drove your horses, your chariots to victory? You brandished your naked bow. Sated were the arrows at your command. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. A torrent of water swept by. The deep gave forth its voice. The sun raised high its hands. The moon stood still in its exalted place at the light of your arrows speeding by, at the gleam of your flashing spear. In your fury, you trod the earth. In anger, you trampled nations. You came forth to save your people, to save your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked house, laying it bare from the foundation to the roof. You pierced with their own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter us, gloating as if ready to devour the poor who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the mighty waters. I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound Rottenness enters into my bones, and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. Let's pray. Lord, let us dwell in this place of awe and a holy fear of you that makes us silent and joy and a quiet song of praise 
that comes to our minds and our mouths as we consider your love. Help us to rest in that place, in between regret and anxiety, in between past and future, in the now of your presence, knowing that your love is steadfast. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The older I get, the more something my grandmother said to me not long before she died, the more that that becomes part of my experience. Not quite as much as she said, but it's getting there. Where you remember things that happened long ago, but can't remember quite where you put your keys five minutes ago. And I remember my grandmother saying to me once that she could remember the dress she wore at her ninth birthday party in brilliant detail but can't remember what happened five minutes ago. (laughs) She died at 90, and I think she was probably 89 when she said that to me. And it's akin to what I've said about my own references to pop culture in sermons, which you're going to get another one today. They're all about 30, 40, or in this case, 50 years old, and they're no longer pop. (laughs) They're long ago, and they're pop when I could remember what pop was. And as I read Habakkuk 3, that theophany, I thought about Carol King's song of 1971. I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the stars tumbling down. I feel my heart start to trembling whenever you're around. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Yeah, see, I'm not so old after all. It's not far from what Habakkuk says at the end of his song, as he remembers the presence of God, as he anticipates the presence of God, he trembles. His lips quiver. He feels that sense of just potent energy at the memory and the anticipation of the presence of his creator. As he pauses to recount how God has shown up in history, as he waits for God to show up, as he watches for some sign of God's presence to crash into the mess in which he is now living as they are anticipating an invasion by Chaldean armies, Habakkuk trembles and gives us this wonderful word about how to manage that interim space. In verses two and three, at the beginning of this song, he says, essentially, things are bad and they're going to get worse. And there are plenty of reasons to stand in awe of you and your work. So revive your work, be who you are. In that wrath that we are experiencing, remember your mercy. And then in verses 3 or 4 through 15, there's a celebration through that string of poetic images that he uses of how God has been present and made known his presence. You made your way to us, he says. First and foremost, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. You made your way to us from Sinai 
and on Sinai revealed your presence to us long before we ever had Jerusalem, which stands now in vulnerability and is about to be destroyed. There's images of creation that Habakkuk refers to here and uses kind of ancient mythology of his day from other cultures to talk about the way that creation is sort of a divine battle with the chaos of an unordered world. He sings of how God's presence changes the face of the landscape. Verses 10 and 11 especially do that. You just read them. The mountains saw you and writhed. A torrent of water swept by. The deep gave forth its voice. The sun raised high its hands. The moon stood still in its exalted place at the light of your arrows speeding by, at the gleam of your flashing spear. They're all poetic renderings of the creation story and how the face of the landscape changes. It's, it's Isaiah 40. The mountains are leveled and, and the valleys are exalted as God makes his way to his people. A road is created on uneven ground and it's made even. It speaks of how ancient enemies were overthrown and especially calling to mind the Exodus, which is the historic truth that gives shape to the people of Israel, that the escape from Egypt, the defeat of Pharaoh's armies at the Red Sea. It's a contemplation that stops him dead in his tracks. And it produces the silence that he calls us to in, at the end of the second chapter. And also in this third chapter, in verse 16, I hear and tremble within, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, and my steps tremble beneath me. I will wait quietly. All I can do in response to this is just shut up and watch. And that's what I'm going to do, is what Habakkuk says. And then the fruit of this experience, the fruit of this experience of being reminded of all that God has done and anticipating all that God will do and living faithfully in the watchtower in the midst of that in-between place, the fruit of all of this, ironically and oddly, is joy. If you read verses 17 through 19, that passage that this is the one that if you don't know anything about Habakkuk, you've heard something about this passage, about everything around you crumbling to nothing and yet choosing to rejoice in the Lord. Things are bad and they're potentially going to get worse, really bad. It's a description of agricultural chaos and complete collapse that he gives us and therefore complete economic collapse and, and therefore famine. Figs, grapes, olives, grain, sheep, goats, and cattle, that pretty much summarizes everything that this culture was dependent on. And yet if all of it goes away, will I be okay? And Habakkuk says, yes, I will still rejoice in the Lord. Even when it's all gone, there will still be a reason for joy. 
Now that's faithfulness and pretty amazing. And it makes me ask the question, what is this joy? Because it's clearly not some kind of giddy, party-going hilarity. It's not that kind of joy at all. And yet other places in the Bible, we learn what this joy is that he's speaking of. The biblical sense of joy in places like Habakkuk 3 and Paul's letter to the Philippians, the biblical sense of joy is a kind of quiet contentment in the present. It's what C.S. Lewis writes about in his autobiography when he talks about being surprised by this kind of joy. It's a choice not to venture back into the grief or regret over what brought you to that place, nor is it the choice to move forward into the future in anxiety over how much worse it's going to get. Well, we know that one today, don't we? But to find solace and contentment in the present, the right now, as we climb into that figurative watchtower and wait and watch for the signs of God's presence, which are available to us every day because God is with us. As we remain faithful to and focused on the faithfulness of God. In the first church that I served, more than once I heard the senior pastor give a, a quotation, and I don't know where he found this quotation, but he repeated it you know, several times in the five years that, that I was there. Hollis Allen was his name, and, and I was just starting my career as a pastor, and I'd reached the ripe age of 25 and was ordained and very much green. And so I can just remember an attentiveness to what was going on around me and, and kind of a, a sense of challenge as I was at that stage. But Hollis more than once said this. He said, joy is peace dancing and peace is joy resting. And it captures the truth that joy is more akin to contentment than it is to giddy hilarity or raucous laughter. The quote is especially meaningful as I consider Hollis himself, the source from which it came, or at least the source from which I heard it, because Hollis was a kind of energetic sheepdog sort of a pastor. And by sheepdog, I mean the one who kind of ran around the flock making sure that things were in order and the flock was okay. He used a lot of energy. And that often produced for him by the time I got there, because he'd been there quite a while by the time I got there, and it often produced the fruit of anxiety and fatigue. It's a, a kind of noble worry that Hollis had, but worry nevertheless, and it took a toll on him. Yet in this statement, I think he gave witness to the truth and also gave witness to the rest of us that this was the thing to which he aspired. He aspired a longing for the experience of this interaction of joy and peace, this dwelling in that 
peace that is dancing and that joy that is resting all at the same time. He expressed that longing and pointing to resting in and faithfulness to the faithfulness of God that enables us to, as Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Joy is peace dancing. Peace is joy resting. It's really an example of climbing to the watchtower and waiting and wondering when the already bad will turn for the worse and yet recognizing that even that can be a place of joy. For it's living more fully in the present, which is what Jesus calls us to do. Because God is there with us, irrespective of circumstances. And though we are losing grip, perhaps, on the things that we thought we could hold, we can rest in the truth that God will always be holding on to us. Let's pray. Help us to live in that middle space, O oh God. That liminal reality of knowing that you have worked and waiting for you to work and wondering when that would happen, but knowing that you are still at work right now here among us in ways that are sometimes subtle and sometimes overt, but always confirming us in the truth that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.